0: Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, Episode 23. Welcome to this episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zerman Jr and this is the podcast dedicated to the history of professional wrestling between 1870 and 1920, although sometimes we'll stretch into the 1930s. And in this episode I'll be talking about sumo wrestling in the United States during the 1800s. But first, I wanted to talk about the bonus episode from a couple weeks ago I hope you enjoyed it it was just my cousin and I discussing the pro wrestling we grew up on and how it was not possible for that wrestling to continue on uh into the 1990s and 2000s with the changing landscape of cable television and the fact that someone was going to go national so I hope you enjoyed that um I also talked about the fact that I have tapped out on modern wrestling, at least for the foreseeable future, unless somebody reincarnates NXT or a ring of honor that actually captures my attention. But one thing I did want to point out, even though I find him to be a deplorable human over the last 10 years with some of the things that he's been doing to his employees... The reason I I think Vince McMahon was successful in winning the wrestling war and becoming the national company is he's just a better businessman than all of his competitors. In the 80s, it wasn't even close. And there were a few businessmen amongst the promoters, but none of them had a national reach. Whereas Vince, early on, knowing that he wanted to go national, didn't just rely on wrestling people. He also hired the best business people and brought modern business practices into professional wrestling. Jim Crockett, you know, probably failed because he failed to do that. He tried to be national while still running his office with the same staff that he had always had. Bill Watts did a similar thing in Louisiana. You have to give him credit for his business acumen. He is one of the greatest promoters of all time, but he never had the best wrestling He just knew how to promote things into a spectacle that people would want to come out and see. Andre the Giant versus Hulk Hogan. And the other thing is, I have to give him kudos, even though I absolutely hate the merger with UFC. I think those two go together like peanut butter and gin. I do have to give him credit for the fact that he probably sold his company for more than it was worth. And it wouldn't have been worth near what it was... Had it not been for his work over the past 40 years building WWE into the national juggernaut that it was. So, while I have many criticisms of him over the last 10 years or so, I respected him a lot in the 90s and 2000s. And you can't take away anything from him as a businessman, as a person that works hard. You know, the other aspects of his life are not nearly as... uh, admirable but in those areas he's very admirable and I'm sure his grandkids love him I'm sure he's not uh, a horrible person but I just the things that he's done with his employees and the fact that he probably doesn't see his family that often because all he does is work are some of the less desirable qualities of Vince McMahon so Vince will always remain sort of an enigma And also a mixed bag. He'll have a mixed legacy. People will respect what he did business-wise. But they'll also not understand why he had to destroy all the other businesses. And why he did some of the things he did when he got later in life. So, in this week's episode, I wanted to talk about something that I didn't actually know before I started researching the book on Sorokichi Matsada and it's Sorokichi, his real name was Kojiro Matsuda, and the name that he went by in the United States, or that newspapers tagged him with, and it always was, his name while he was here, is Sorokichi Matsuda. For the book, I've corrected it to Matsuda, because what happened was the newspapers corrupted his sumo name, which was Torokichi, and his last name, which was Matsuda, and he became Sorokichi Matsada instead of Torokichi Matsuda. But when I first was researching Evan Strangler Lewis, I obviously researched the two matches in Chicago with Matsuda because they were primarily responsible for Lewis's horrible reputation as a vicious wrestler, which was well earned and true. But even some of the other people he hurt, he didn't hurt nearly as bad as he tried to hurt Matsuda. Um, He took a strong dislike to Matsuda, and it could have been for a number of reasons. I may actually talk about those matches again in the next podcast, but this one I just wanted to focus on the sumo wrestling, because I did not know, before I started researching the new Matsuda book, that there was sumo wrestling in the United States in the 1880s. When I was researching Lewis and saw that they uh, Matsuda had wrestled some matches Japanese style, I made the mistake of assuming that those were jiu-jitsu matches, which were very common. Um, a lot of judo and jiu-jitsu black belts traveled the world in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and where they went, they would have challenge matches with people. One of the more famous ones is Taro Miyake, who actually became a professional wrestler and work matches later on. But initially, when he came into England and the United States, he was wrestling legitimate challenge matches with professional wrestlers. And they would normally do a fall in Japanese rules, which was sort of judo-jujitsu rules. The opponent normally had to wear a gi top. They'd look sort of like sambo players today. And then they'd have a catch as catch can rules fall in the mixed style bouts in these challenge matches. When I read that Matsuda wrestled by Japanese rules, I initially thought, "Oh, that's they're doing the jiu-jitsu. But then, as I learned about his background and learned he was a sumo wrestler, they actually had a description of his match with Ed, his first sumo match. And this was the only actual true match by sumo rules completely. So a sumo wrestling match. They weren't wearing the traditional garb. But Matsuda's first match in the United States was was with Bibby. And it was in catch wrestling rules. Sorry about that. This allergy season is killing me. And I'll start talking. And then all of a sudden I start sounding like Froggy because of these allergens. So... Anyway, um, Matsuda uh, wrestled Bibby in a catch rules match. His very first match in the United States, I think it was January 1884. And he lost to Bibby in two straight falls. Not particularly surprising as uh, Matsuda was not familiar with catch rules yet. And Bibby was a very talented catch wrestler. He was the first American heavyweight wrestling champion. And that championship was contested under... uh, catch-as-catch-can, or catch-wrestling rules. So to make things even and to give Matsuda a chance, Bibby agreed to wrestle a match, I think it was in February, via Japanese rules. And this, I do believe, is the only completely sumo rules wrestling match in the United States uh, in the 1800s. And in this match, it was supposed to be a 3 out of 5 falls according to Japanese rules, Normally, after you win five or after you win three falls, the match is over. But that's this match actually went to five falls, and it was the sumo rules. They drew a circle on the mat area, and if the wrestler went out of the circle, or if a part of their body touched the mat other than the soles of their feet, they lost the bout. Matsuda won this match in five straight falls in like two minutes for all five falls. So it was pretty obvious. And it was a confusing thing, but it was pretty obvious that nobody was a match for Matsuda yet in this version of rules. And it could have been just a lack of familiarity. Just as the Gracies dominated those first several UFCs, and people said a lot of that was because most of the competitors were unfamiliar with ground fighting, Which wasn't completely true. Uh, Shamrock was familiar with it. And there was one or two others that were familiar with ground fighting. But I don't think anybody spent the time that the Gracies did on the ground. And that was a real disadvantage for them in those first Ultimate Fighting Championships. Bibby, nor the referee, nor the fans understood the sumo rules. So it was very difficult. It was not a success as a wrestling match because the fans walked away bewildered and confused and part of the confusion came from the fact that Matsuda would do something which would result in him winning the fall either he would drop Bibby to a knee or Bibby would end up on all fours hands and knees or he would knock him out of the circle and he would jump up and celebrate but the referee didn't completely understand the rules so he's kind of looking looking at Matsuda and then realizing oh yeah by the way he explained the rules before the match, that was a fall. So with all the confusion of the referee, the confusion of Bibby, and the confusion of the fans, the only sumo wrestling match that took part place in the United States was definitely a failure. No one was going to come back out to see that match. But Matsuda still had the challenge of he was not familiar with catch wrestling rules yet, so he wanted to continue to be able to wrestle by Japanese rules... To at least have a chance with the American wrestlers. So what they did, which was very common in those days, they started agreeing to mixed style matches. And mixed style matches would be, some, all five falls would be contested in a different wrestling style. Because you had Cornish, you had Side Hold, you had Back Hold, Catch this Catch Can, Greco-Roman Wrestling... Cumberland Wrestling, you had all these different wrestling styles now, Japanese or sumo style. But mixed style wrestling matches were very common in the 1800s. Before catch wrestling really became the dominant style in the mid to late 1890s, it was common that the professional wrestlers would wrestle their match according to different styles because normally both of the wrestlers were not a specialist in one style of wrestling. So, if you had a match between uh, John McMahon and William Muldoon, John McMahon was a collar and elbow champion. He would want at least one of the falls to be collar and elbow. Muldoon was a Greco-Roman wrestling specialist. He would want one of the falls to be Greco-Roman wrestling. And if you wanted to wrestle Muldoon for the world title, you had to agree to all of the falls being Greco-Roman wrestling. So Matsuda's next few matches, he has another match with Bibby. He has a match with Duncan C. Ross, a couple matches with Duncan C. Ross, uh, Captain Daly, Andre Crystal, and all of those matches, it might be two catch wrestling falls, two Japanese wrestling falls, and then the referee will toss a coin to determine what the style of the fifth fall will be. And of course, if Bibby won, he would choose catch wrestling. If Matsuda won the coin toss, he would choose the Japanese rules or sumo rules and for the next four or five months he wrestles several matches and no one beats him in the Japanese rules falls but he does actually start to win an occasional Greco-Roman wrestling fall or a catch wrestling fall he's starting to learn the dominant styles in America And eventually he would just wrestle his matches predominantly in catch wrestling, unless he was wrestling Muldoon, and then it would be Greco-Roman. But to even those things up, he's wrestling these Japanese falls until the summer when Duncan C. Ross actually wins a Japanese rules falls from him. It was the first time since he had been in America that he dropped a fall to anyone In Japanese rules. Within another month, he's also lost one Japanese fall to Joe Acton, who was next to Lewis and Muldoon, probably the greatest professional wrestler of the 1880s. Acton came to England, beat Bibby for the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship, which was a catch wrestling title, and Muldoon would not defend the World Championship against Acton because Acton, even though he was five foot five and hundred and sixty pounds, would not agree to wrestle all the falls in Greco-Roman. He told Muldoon, "You've got such a size advantage on me at six feet and two twenty. We need to wrestle one fall catch wrestling." But Muldoon was never going to agree to that because he was afraid Acton would catch him with a hook or a submission and hurt him, where he would have to forfeit the title and the match to Acton. So Acton was a great wrestler. He studied the rules of the Japanese falls, and he beat uh, Matsuda more convincingly, even than Ross or some of the other people that would eventually take a Japanese rules fall from him. Matsuda does do the sumo rules, probably for another five or six months, but by the middle of 1885, he's familiar enough with catch wrestling, and he's trained enough with the American wrestlers that he drops the sumo rules, which the fans struggle to understand anyway. And he wrestled primarily catch wrestling matches, but he did wrestle Greco-Roman, particularly the matches he uh, secured with William Muldoon, a couple for the world title. So, as I've always said, you learn new things every time you take on a new research project. When I decided to write the book on Matsuda... I had no clue that we had sumo wrestling rules uh, matches in the United States. And it was an interesting discovery. And I think will increase the scholarship of the professional wrestling in this era. Um, The 19th century, I think, is still a little neglected. There are some good historians out there doing some history on it. But I have read a lot, uh, done a lot of research in this area... And yet, I, I, I had no idea that this happened. So it was a, a cool discovery, and it reinforced the fact that I made the right decision in researching this subject. So I know this is a bit of a short episode for this month, so I actually wanted to finish up with a review of a couple of shows I've watched over the last couple of weeks. So when I was down at my cousin's a couple of weeks ago recording this podcast... After we recorded the podcast, we went and watched a few of the old wrestling ma- or wrestling shows from the 1980s. And because of that, in my YouTube feed, a couple of things popped up for JCW or Georgia Championship Wrestling from the 1980s. And I did not get to see Georgia Championship Wrestling when it was first run. I'd read about it in the magazines, but I probably only saw four or five episodes. Because we did not get cable in St. Louis City, where I lived. I lived in the city of St. Louis. We did not get cable in the city of St. Louis until 1986. Because the franchises were fighting over who would get the exclusive rights to provide cable coverage to the city. I did see it a couple of times when I went down to the country to see my dad. But I didn't see my dad from the middle of 1981... Until the middle of 1984. Or I'm sorry. uh, Christmas 81 to the middle of 1984. About two and a half years. And by that time. uh, Black Saturday had already happened. Georgia was pretty much done. As a promotion. Or a major promotion. So I only saw two or three episodes. I read about it a lot in the magazines. Particularly during that really hot period. In 82 and 83. When... Uh, Tommy Rich was feuding with Buzz Sawyer. That was one of the biggest feuds in the United States. But we never got to see it. We would just get to read about it in the magazines. So my first opportunity to see that was when WWE Network, when I used to have it, put up The Last Battle of Atlanta. And a lot of this stuff's available on YouTube as well. I don't think the WWE considers it very valuable stuff because they don't really worry about that too much. And when they put up The Last Battle of Atlanta, they also put up the the December show that came right after it. When Buzz Sawyer became a fan favorite. And uh, Tommy Rich had a World Wrestling, uh, I'm sorry, a National Wrestling Alliance World Championship match with Ric Flair on this December card. So if you uh, go into YouTube, you put Last Battle of Atlanta, the Last Battle of Atlanta card will come up. And if you put in uh, GCW at the Omni, December 1983, that'll pull up that card. It's, uh, I think, December 4th, 1983. And I went and we watched Last Battle of Atlanta when I was down there. And I had the same feeling that when I saw it on WWE Network... And that was it. this was a lot of ado about nothing. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a bloody brawl. They, they beat each other. But I've seen much better matches uh, in other places. But that's the problem of evaluating these things in a vacuum. Had I been a regular watcher of Georgia Championship Wrestling, I probably would have loved and thought it was great because it was a culmination of a feud that lasted almost two years. So if I had been invested in it for those two years, I probably would have liked it much better. Number two, I knew Buzz Sawyer because I would saw Mid-South in the 1980s. I never got to see Tommy Rich in his prime. I just saw him in the magazines. And when he took the title from Harley Race for five days in 1981, I'm like, who is this guy? And how on earth did he ever beat Harley Race? And it was only a five-day reign, so it was a fluke anyway unbeknownst to me, I didn't know it created a lot of problems in the NWA because the uh, that was not a okayed, sanctioned NWA title change. Harley did it as a favor to Jim Barnett, and that set off a lot of consternation around the National Wrestling Alliance because that was not supposed to happen. So now, never having seen Tommy Rich, and then seeing this match with him and Busoy, I'd really, you know, as compared to the Von Erichs of the time, who were the big baby faces not only in Dallas but in St. Louis too, as was Ted DiBiase, I, I really wasn't impressed. And then on that December card, DiBiase is a bad guy, and I thought Ted DiBiase was great as a fan favorite. He was one of our absolute favorites in St. Louis. And I thought he was great as a heel, too. But this match with Buzz Sawyer, I don't know if it was a style clash. Because I've seen much, much better Ted DiBiase matches. And it starts off DiBiase's berating Sawyer. And then he reaches across and hits him with the weakest slap I have ever seen. If you It's out in that December GCW at the Omnicard. Go back and watch the beginning of that match, if nothing else. And to me, that was a big exposure uh, of wrestling for how easy he hit him. Now, I understand that Buzz was not always the easiest person to work with in the ring. So maybe Ted was being extra careful with him. But at the same time, it was like, my goodness, I've been hit harder um, by little old ladies than, than he got. And then he hit him. And then the world title match between Ric Flair and Tommy Rich, it was not a bad match. I don't know that Ric Flair in those days, in late 83 to probably the late 80s, actually even the early 90s, I don't think Flair could have a bad match. And he definitely had a a decent match with Rich, but I think by this point in time, Tommy Rich as a fan favorite had even worn out his welcome with the Georgia fans. And I say that because of the reaction at the very end, I'm not going to spoiler and give away what happens, but there's a screw job finish. Instead of the fans being ready to riot and kill uh, everybody that had anything to do with the finish, they just kind of go, uh, like throw their programs down and just leave. Like, here we go again. It was not, oh, you no good. It was, well, here we go again. He lost it again. And They left. And I, it's like, ooh. So I, I could see why the promotion was kind of on its backside at that point in time. Because their top babyface, if that's the reaction you're get, getting, it's not good. I do want to make a couple of honorable mentions. Um, Ole Anderson and Paul Ellering had a brawl at the end of the last battle uh, of Atlanta. The stipulation was if Rich beat Sawyer that... Ellerine and uh, Anderson would get, I think, five minutes or ten minutes with Ellerine who was the manager of Buzz Sawyer. And that actually was pretty good. And I did like the way that both Rich and Sawyer sold how devastating that last battle was, and it took them both quite a bit of time to get out of the ring. You also see a tease in that, ma- in that, that card, the last battle of Atlanta, the first card. When Buzz Sawyer comes out to ringside, when Brett Wayne, who would be revealed on television a few weeks later, to be Buzz Sawyer's brother, and it is his real-life brother, not a kayfabe brother. He actually comes out and is showing concern when uh, Brett Sawyer is out there, I think, wrestling Jake the Snake Roberts. Um, But he's got an injured knee, and so that was the first tease of Buzz Sawyer's getting ready to turn face. What surprised me on the last Battle of Atlanta and the following Omnicard, I'm used to the Road Warriors being this devastating force of nature, and they pretty much got their butts kicked for almost the whole match. Uh, They took on Jimmy Valiant and Pistol Pest Watley in the last Battle of Atlanta card, and Valiant and Watley just pretty much pounded them, you know, so I'm not used to that. (laughs) That was quite shocking. The Road Warriors are very young in their career. They're very green. But still, that was a pretty shocking development. I encourage you to go back and watch those two cards. And let me know what you think of them. I will say after watching them, I realized that not everything that we thought was great really stands up today. I had thought that World Class Championship Wrestling was great. Great. It was my second favorite show behind Wrestling at the Chase. And it was great. From 1983, when the Freebirds come in, until a few months after David died. But after David died, you can definitely see his lack of influence on that promotion. Because it went back to being a mid major and not that exciting of one. Um. This These GCW shows and the GCW cards I've been looking at Maybe it's just not my cup of tea But I don't see them holding up as much as a Mid-South Wrestling I would say Mid-South Wrestling from 1981 to 1985 was great There's a few couple month periods once or twice in there Like late, uh, late 83 That aren't great. It was when Bill Watts worked with Georgia Championship Wrestling for a short time. But for the most part, Mid-South pretty much stands up to the test of time. They still, you watch them today from 81 to 85, and those are compelling television shows. Some of the other ones, though, they they just don't measure up, unfortunately. So that's it for this week. Um, next month's ep- or episode will be released on June 12th, and that will be the last episode for this first year season. And then in July, I'll be coming back, and we may have a bonus episode in July. We'll have to see. But until next time, take care, everybody. Bye-bye.